Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, we are thrilled to bring you, without question, this nation's expert on Amazon. Brad Stone has written on Jeff Bezos. Brad Stone knows the story better than anyone I know. Brad, your thoughts on Mr. Bezos into space. Frame his path in his life to this moment. Yeah, hey, Tom. You know, this is a story that started probably 40 years ago when he spent his summers with his grandparents at their ranch in South Texas, and his grandfather had worked on the space program. Bezos got the space bug watching the Apollo uh, moon landings. He gave his his uh, speech uh, at his at his high school. He was the valedictorian about space travel, and really he's he's been consistent with the vision. That speech was all about opening up the space frontier, having humans living and working in space, and today is the first step on that journey. It's been a long path. He founded Blue Origin in 2000. The company hasn't had a lot of success to show for it, but as you mentioned, they're working on orbital rockets and moon landers, often in competition with SpaceX. But today, even though it's a more modest suborbital flight, it's an important step for Bezos and for Blue Origin. Brad, I've tried to be transparent and balanced about the moment we're in right now because Myself, Tom, others get a lot of criticism for covering an event like this. This is an event that is very, very divisive. Jeff Bezos has taken a lot of criticism about it. How has he confronted that issue as he makes these kind of steps forward? He's ignored it. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's someone who probably has pretty thick skin over the years, being criticized for so many things at Amazon, some quite justifiably. But as Emily mentioned earlier, there's kind of a palpable excitement here in, in, in West Texas right now. The criticism seems kind of distant. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll return to it in the press conference later today. But Bezos is just consistent. He's got this long-term vision. He kind of knows that not everyone's going to buy into it. But, you know, he's been right about these things before, particularly with Amazon. I'm not saying he's right here. It seems kind of wacky, this idea of millions of humans working and living in space one day, generations from now. But, you know, he, that's, he, he believes in it. It's his money. He's got $200 billion. And this is what he wants to spend his money and his time doing. Now, Brad, Blue Origin actually has two astronauts on staff, and the understanding among employees was that those astronauts would be the first to fly on the new Shepard. Instead, Jeff Bezos seemed to surprise many people, saying it would be him. In all your years reporting on Amazon, in all your years reporting on Bezos, did you ever think he'd be the first person to ride on his own rocket? Yeah, definitely not. I don't think a lot of Blue engineers and executives thought that he would be going first, as you say, two NASA, ex-NASA astronauts are on staff. The idea was that they would go first and kind of test the, the customer experience. But in some ways, it's, it's consistent. I mean, Bezos is all about bold moves. He uses the word adventure, swashbuckling adventure. And right, this is the greatest adventure that there is. And he's sending a signal here to his company and to the world that he believes in the spacecraft, he believes in the mission, and he's willing to put himself at some small amount of risk to go see it to fruition. Now, Bezos is doing this just a couple of weeks after stepping down as CEO of Amazon. He has said he could have done this as CEO of Amazon. But but do you believe that? Do you buy that? Or do you think this was part of some sort of coordinated timeline? He wanted to do this, but not while he was CEO. 
I mean, it, it does appear orchestrated, right? That he would have announced his resignation as CEO back in what was it, late January and then stepping aside in early July and now a few weeks later going to space. I mean, I think if Blue Origin had readied New Shepard two years ago uh, when it was supposed to launch the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, he probably would have gone as CEO. Uh, but like, it's just neater now, it's cleaner. You're not, you don't have Amazon investors maybe worrying as much. So no, I don't think it's an accident. We are 15 minutes away from the first human flight for Blue Origin's New Shepard. You can hear a round of applause from the headquarters of Blue Origin. You can see Jeff Bezos just inside the capsule. The final check's taking place, Tom. They're secured in their harnesses. We've had the final communications. The hatch is closed. It's T minus 15. Yeah, again, T-minus 15, and you wonder about the sequencing, uh, the sequencing here as well. What's interesting with the modern technology of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, John, it is a shockingly simple system. It is radically simpler, cleaner, and better than what we were used to years ago. Remember the Saturns, they'd start flaming up ages before they take off. This is a piece of cake with a much, much less heavy payload. With us now, Janet Cavandi, Sierra Space Executive Vice President, and she is a former NASA astronaut as well. Will these be astronauts, astronaut Cavandi? <laughs> well, technically speaking, once you pass that 62-mile mark, you will be in space and therefore have traveled in space, which is the definition of an astronaut. Not necessarily a career astronaut, but an astronaut nonetheless. What is so interesting here is the simplicity of the systems. Identify this experience versus our stereotype of Ron Howard's, you know, the right stuff and the rest of it, Apollo 13, all the back and forth of hundreds and hundreds of people. How do you experience this simplicity Mr. Bezos has invented? I think it's very elegant. You know, the more we learn, the more we learn what we need and what we don't need. Um, he has gone a very simplistic route. Uh, I think it's a, a wonderful achievement for someone who's essentially done this on his own because of his own desire to go in space, his own desire to see the Earth from that viewpoint. Uh, and I think he will continue to do great things, bigger and better things, just like NASA did through the generation and the evolution of the rockets that were that came before this one. Janet, I understand we will have the oldest and the youngest, both the oldest and the youngest ever into space. Can you walk me through the degree of training that these particular astronauts-to-be have experienced versus what would have been experienced 10, 20 years ago for a similar mission? Probably not all that different. I mean, you have your spacesuits that you have to learn how to operate. If there are any emergencies, you have those kinds of equipment that you have to learn to do an egress from. When you um, go up to space, you have to uh, unbuckle and then float around without kicking each other in the head. Then you have to get back in your seat, which is probably one of the more trying things to do since you'll only be there for a few minutes and then get yourself in a safe position so that you can come back down and land without hurting anyone. So, uh, and then probably an emergency egress out of the capsule once landing, uh, once they have landed. So those kinds of things are what you practice um, just in case something, you know, someone were not there or something were to go wrong, you can, you can help yourself get out of the vehicle. Janet, just experiencing a brief hold here at T minus 15, how typical are things like this to have a brief hold 15 minutes out? 
Oh, very, very typical. I don't think there was ever a space flight that I was on that didn't have a hold at some point during the countdown. Uh, sometimes they're built in and sometimes they're unexpected. Um, it does kind of, you know, raise the tension inside the cockpit because you're mm-hmm. excited and, and you want to go and, and there may be a delay. And uh, But it is, um, it, it doesn't matter. In the end, whenever you fly, it is all worth yeah. it. Esther Cavendi, I've got to get in a geek question here because it's something we have not talked about as we've prepared uh, for this launch today. Your PhD at Washington is in analytical chemistry and in materials science. How original are the materials of this Blue Origin rocket and capsule versus our stereotypes sitting in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum? I mean, I think they're all relatively similar every evolution like i mentioned earlier you try to learn something new use a better um, material a better fuel less toxic fuels less toxic materials uh as as you well know jeff is all about the environment and keeping the planet healthy and making it a safer place and a and in and and longevity of the earth is really paramount in his mind. So he wants to protect the earth. So I'm sure he's gone to every extent to try to uh, use the least toxic materials possible. For our audience worldwide on Bloomberg TV and radio and for our audience joining us over on Bloomberg Quick Take, we've been on hold now for a little more than six minutes, Tom, at T-minus 15, just a brief hold that's lasted about six minutes as we await Blue Origin's first human flight. Six minutes we've been on hold at T-minus 15, Tom. It, it, we'll see. We'll have to see where this goes. As the astronaut tells us, this is not unusual. Janet Convandi, I've got to talk about the fresh air of your Missouri coming out of Carthage there in the University of uh, Missouri and Wally Funk to the south in Oklahoma. What is it about the Midwest aviation heritage that puts people like you into space? You know, I've thought about that a lot. There are a lot of Midwesterners that love to go to space. I don't know. I think in part for me, at least, it was seeing the night sky from the Midwest. It's very beautiful. You can see all the stars. You can see the Milky Way. And it's just so majestic when you look at space from that vantage point. And I know from a very young age, I would tell my dad that I wanted to go up there and see what it would be like to be in space and look back at the earth. Uh, so maybe it's that, and maybe it's just that, you know, there's not the other distractions that you have in a, a more urban life. Um, you know, you have time to dream, you have time to look out there, you have time to think about exploring. So maybe a combination of all those mm. things is, is what inspires us Midwesterners. And Dr. Cavandi, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Sierra Space, our executive vice president, of course, uh, a NASA astronaut and former director of NASA's Glenn Research Center. We continue with one final discussion here uh, on our moment in space, and that is the engineering of our many space programs. Daniel Wood is expert at this, director of Space Enabled Research Group at MIT Media Lab, who dovetails a lot of social efforts and social policy into grunt engineering. And I say that, Danielle, with immense, immense respect. There's that scene, Danielle, in Apollo 13 where they're going to die. And the three engineers are in mission control and they got the canister and they're going to purify the oxygen or the astronauts are going to die. And they all pull out and sink their Kufalan-Esser slide rules. 
We are so far removed from the slide rules of a busted Apollo mission. What is the technology forward that we will see from this private enterprise? It's wonderful to celebrate today. I'm so happy for Wally Funk and for somebody like her who's had such a long road to this road to space. And we can think about the technology by asking, you know, what has been the road for all the companies? Uh, I was in college watching the Ansari X Prize. I want to appreciate Anisha Ansari who helped fund some of the early investments by private companies trying to demonstrate the ability to put a human into space through a suborbital mission several times in a row. And what we're seeing today you know, with multiple launches by private companies is part of this long journey. There's also been a great coordination between government and private sector. I used to work for NASA and NASA has within its congressional mandate something called the Space Act Agreement capability, meaning they can make agreements with organizations that are private sector organizations to share engineering right. knowledge and experience on spaceflight. Professor Wood, you are a Kennedy Center, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, it's Cape Canaveral, Professor, just so you know, for some of us that are of a certain age. You were an intern there, and I'm sure in your Orlando, and your Central Florida, you were grilled, why are we doing this? Explain now, why are we doing this in 2021? Everyone on Earth is benefiting from the investments that governments and the private sector are making in space. I travel all over the world and I engage with leaders of countries in Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, Southeast Asia. Countries on every continent are investing in space infrastructure and are looking for ways for private companies to play a role in the space ecosystem. Because space brings us many benefits through observing the environment, understanding and responding to climate change, managing our fragile coastlines, and also thinking about providing services. But even human spaceflight and microgravity research helps us transfer benefits from space back to Earth. We understand better how to recycle water, how to recycle air and make uh, ecosystems that are clean, whether they're artificial, but also on Earth. And we also understand better how our bodies and plants and animals respond uh, in an environment like a microgravity, which explains their fundamental physics better. There's also the inspiration side. I am running a program at MIT called Zero Robotics, and we're inviting middle school students from around the country mm -hmm. to learn about space robotics and how to code. And one day we hope to do this with a collaboration with the space station and expose them uh, to the space station, which has been done before in the past. And so these opportunities inspire the next generation of leaders as well. The great fear here is that will be a success for the elites. As you well know, we have two Americas. How do we translate technological innovation? How do we translate, as Brynjolson and McAfee talk about, the race against the machine? How do we translate this technology over to the have-nots, the technological have-nots? nuts of America. I spend a lot of my time thinking about how we can do engineering design in a way that's equitable, advances environmental sustainability, and economic justice. This means first asking who's involved, ensuring that we have increased diversity and access to technology. It also means designing these space systems in a way that directly serves the needs of those who've experienced environmental injustice or long-term discrimination. It also means listening to groups like indigenous communities that have uh, concerns, cultural questions about what humans do in space. For example, uh, thinking of the moon as a sacred place. There's a lot of ways we can use space technology to provide services like disaster response, for example. And we can also then listen to those who usually don't uh, have a strong chance to give their view on it, what we do in space. Because we're about to make some key decisions as a human race on how we treat the space environment. And I think we need more voices involved in this going forward. Danielle, just a final word from you. You mentioned the public-private <laughs> partnerships, and I think it's spot on to point that out. But for many of these efforts, they're increasingly privatized, and the gains will be shared with 
the shareholders. And I wonder your thoughts on that as we move away from strictly a government effort towards something much more highly privatized. I think it's so important that we continue to see uh, government infrastructure allowing services like research opportunities for universities, like uh, internationally shared uh, climate data that's important for everyone around the world. I hope that that becomes a, a private, sorry, a public a service that continues for years to come. There will also be private activities that kind of build on the government infrastructure. And I think it remains to see, be seen whether that's going to be only open to the elite. It is possible for private companies to consider how they can have business models that mm. provide further openness to those who have less access or less ability to pay. But this is a choice that they need to make, and I hope they do make it. Professor Wood, thank you so much for joining us with the MIT Media Lab, uh, Daniel Wood. Chad Anderson with us with a final thought here. He has been more than patient, Space Capital's managing uh, partner of the dovetail of all of this innovation, the NASA that we used to know and maybe the NASA that's still there with where we're moving forward. And, uh, you know, we've talked about the next steps of these people, but to John's point, does private enterprise and private competition get in the way of space success? Absolutely not. It's driving it forward. We started off in a place where we had never been to space. Then we launched a satellite. Then we launched a human. And then we landed on the moon. And we've been regressing ever since. And it's only thanks to private efforts that we are now accelerating um, back into. So what does NASA think of this event today? I think they think very highly of this event, and, and they're very happy to see the success. Again, they are benefiting from this. Um, they are going to now be able to rely on low-cost, innovative partners, um, uh, leveraging reusability and enabling them to do more with their limited budgets. I mean, this this hits on a few different notes. One, the inspiration front. Um, two, okay. the competition that's driving innovation forward. And three, we right. wouldn't be we wouldn't have the capability that we have today without space technology. Can these guys in Texas cowboy hats teach anybody at JPL anything? I'm serious. I mean, or it might not not the media lab at MIT, but MIT Aeronautics, the legacy of Harold Edgerton, and the rest of it. Can they teach the pros anything? It's a great question. And it's my only good one today, so you better go with it. A hundred percent, yes. And they learn from each other. It's a symbiotic relationship. So NASA has a lot of heritage and a lot of great, you know, embedded expertise. They've been there and they've done that. The private sector is challenging a lot of the embedded assumptions and doing things in new ways, allowing yeah. them to do things more effectively and more cost effectively. Chad, just quickly, investable opportunities right now. Let's close right there. Is this a single name opportunity or do you want to play the industry as, as a whole? We've gone from a very limited market uh, 10 years ago, handful of defense contractors on one side and the government on the other. There has now been $200 billion invested in over 1,500 unique space companies over the last 10 years. This is a massive market opportunity, um, cuts across the infrastructure, the distribution, and the applications of that satellite data um, in space technology stacks such as GPS, geospatial intelligence, and communications. This is a massive market opportunity that we're just on the forefront of. I love asking that question and seeing an investor, Tom, lean in. Just lean in and give the pitch. Give the yeah. pitch. Chad Anderson yeah. there with the pitch. Space Capital Managing Partner. Chad, thank you for being with us through the last couple of hours. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.